0: and 365-day returns.
2: Hello, friends. Welcome. Delighted to have you with me today. This is an interview that so many of you have asked for. I am excited to be joined by presidential candidate, former governor, and former ambassador, Nikki Haley. It was great to be able to have a conversation that was not interrupted by other candidates in a debate, And I hope you will find this helpful and interesting. So let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. I'm very excited to be welcoming presidential candidate Nikki Haley to the show.
1: Thanks for being here. No, this is fun. I'm glad we got to do this.
2: Have you been getting any sleep? It
1: seems like the campaign trail is incredibly exhausting. No sleep, but we'll sleep later. And we have a country to save. You know, there's 16, 17-hour days, but... You know, it's anything and everything until the end. It's so important. I mean, the reason I'm doing this, I don't want my kids to live like this. I don't want your kids to live like this. I think that, you know, we've got to get to a better place where we don't have the anger. We don't have the division. We don't have having to worry about what you say at the dinner table. We, I mean, we've just got to get past all of that.
2: One of the things my audience is very interested in hearing you talk about is What kind of strategies, because you are, you're a policy person, you're a a strategic thinker, what kind of strategies will you bring to the table that will help bridge the divide between Republicans and
1: Democrats? We all know it needs to happen, but how? Well, I think first you have to look at just the fact that 70% of Americans have said they don't want to see a Trump-Biden rematch. The majority of Americans disapprove of Joe Biden and the majority of Americans disapprove of Donald Trump. So if you know that and you know our country's in disarray and the world is on fire, the last thing we need are two candidates in their 80s to carry us through this. That's just, it doesn't make sense. And that's why we say there needs to be a new generational leader. And if you look at the people that we're bringing into the fold. I don't ask them if they're Republican or Independent or Democrat. I just tell them where I stand, what I'm for, but the tone matters, right? And I think that if you look at where Republicans are coming from, Republicans have lost the last seven out of eight popular votes for president. That's nothing to be proud of. We should want to win the majority of Americans. And so for me, this is a story of addition. And I think the way you bring people together is... What I did as governor, what I did as ambassador, I don't judge people. I don't decide who's good and who's bad, who's right and who's wrong. The goal of a leader is to come out, over communicate the situation, give a solution and bring out the best in people going forward. And if you do that, that's what brings people back together. It's not about choosing a side. I think that's what's been the problem for so long. The side we choose is the American side, right? And it's about getting more patriotic, but also getting D.C. back to work. Everybody's tired of working for government. They just want to see government start serving the people again. Totally. Most people think that Congress is incredibly dysfunctional and
2: has an incredibly low approval rating right now. What would you do as president to actually start getting them to serve the American people, which is what they're elected to do, which is what our tax dollars pay them to do, and which the vast majority
1: of Americans feel like they are absolutely not doing? Well, first, I've always believed in term limits. I think we need to have term limits. I've always said we need to have mental competency tests for anyone over the age of 75. And I don't say that to be disrespectful. I don't care if we do it for 50 and up. But these are people making decisions on our national security. These are people making decisions on the future of our economy. We need to know they're at the top of their game. And the other side of it is you look at Congress. They have one job, and that's to produce a budget that pays for government, and they have to put it out on time. Do you know Congress has only put out a budget on time four times in 40 years? What we'll say to them is, you don't give us a budget on time, you don't get paid. We've got to start holding them accountable. You see this border bill that just came out. Two things went wrong with this. First, they come out with a bill. And the bill, you know, it had some, some good and some bad in it. The good in it was that it strengthened asylum laws, which we needed to see those strengthen. The bad was it didn't have the remain in Mexico policy, which would actually keep illegal immigrants in Mexico without having them step foot on U.S. soil to be processed. The other side is it had a threshold that it would only kick in after 5000 illegal immigrants have come across the border. We don't want to allow any to come across the border without being vetted, without knowing who they are. But the problem is you have President Trump who came in and said, don't pass anything because it won't help me in the election. And the fact that this is actually a national security threat, every day we're without a border bill is another day all of us are in danger. America's acting like it's September 10th, and we better remember what September 12th felt like. It only takes one person for a 9-11 moment. So the way I would handle that is, first of all, tell Congress, you don't leave until we figure this out. They can amend the bill. They can fix the bill. They can make it better. But that's the part of a leader. That's what you do is you bring both sides together to get them to get it right in the first place. Right now, they've got Congress has thrown up their hands, said they can't do anything. Biden's not doing anything but blaming other people. It's wrong. That's exactly what upsets the American people is that they don't get anything done. And when I was governor, if we were At a lock in getting things done, I would pull them in and I'd say, We're not leaving until we figure this out. And I wouldn't let them leave. That's what we have to do in DC. They have to understand that the American people expect them to work, not sit there and peacock on TV, not sit there and give their talking points, but actually work for the American people.
2: I can't imagine a private business being like, You know what? We didn't get any of our work done, but go ahead and everyone take a vacation. That doesn't work anywhere else in the United States. And it angers hardworking Americans that that's how people are being paid with our tax dollars are acting. Like I'm working hard for a living over here. My boss would not give me two weeks off if I did none of my job. It's
1: exactly right. I mean, that's the thing is this isn't rocket science. This is just about the fact that we need to hold them to the same level of accountability that everybody else is held to. I mean, you look at so much of what's happened with our economy and you look at the debt I mean, Congress continues to spend. We're now $34 trillion in debt. We're having to borrow money just to make our interest payments. China owns some of that debt. And I would love to be able to tell you that Biden did that to us. But I've always spoken in hard truths, and I'll do that with you today. Our Republicans did that to us, too. You go back and look at the $2.2 trillion COVID stimulus bill that they passed with no accountability It's now left us with 80 million Americans on Medicaid, 42 million Americans on food stamps. That's a third of our country. And when Republicans had the opportunity to make it right, they made it worse. They opened up pet projects and earmarks for the first time in 10 years, pushing through 7,000 of them last December. The things they spent our tax dollars on, $30 million on an honors college in Vermont. $10 $10 million to tear down a hotel in Alaska, $7.5 million on a courthouse in Colorado, and the list goes on. In the 2024 appropriations budget, Republicans put in $7.4 billion worth of pet projects. Democrats put in $2.8 billion. So now you tell me who the big spenders are. All while one in six American families can't pay their utility bill, 60% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, of American families can't afford diapers. They're raiding Social Security. We've got to get it to a place where they understand it's not their money. It's our money. And it's also why we have to reduce the size of the federal government. It's gotten too big and too bloated. And we can do that. And the way that I'll do that is first we'll take as many federal programs as we can and send them down to the state level that way we reduce we will reduce the size of the federal government but we'll empower people on the ground think education think healthcare think welfare think mental health if we were to go and take that out of dc and start giving those resources to the states they would be used more efficiently but they would be customized to that state the way they need to be done and so you know these are things that just should be automatically should just be common sense you look at 70% of federal employees Are still working from home three years after COVID. Yet 75% of most of our federal agencies are still sitting empty. Which one is it? Because we're paying for all of that. So it's just about cleaning it up. And it's why I continue to say it's time that we have an accountant in the White House. Okay. I have more questions from people who submitted them who really want to hear from you. The
2: next question is How do you respond to the criticism that you are a war hawk? I know you've heard it before. And I know that many people view foreign policy as one of your strengths. So how would you speak to the person who alleges
1: that that is your position? I am the proud wife of a combat veteran. My husband is currently deployed. The last thing I ever want is for him or any of our military members to go to war. I don't push for war. I push to prevent war. It should always be about preventing war. Every way I think is how do we avoid a war? That's not being a war hawk, but that does mean you have to let countries know what you expect of them. When I went to the United Nations, I told countries what America was for and what America was against. I didn't care if they didn't like me, but I wanted them to respect America. The reason we have all these wars around us today is nobody respects us. And you look at the fact that, we've got a war in Europe. We've got a war in the Middle East. We've got North Korea testing intercontinental ballistic missiles capable of hitting the U.S. We've got China on the march. But none of that would have happened had we not had that debacle in Afghanistan. Now, my husband served in Afghanistan. The idea that him and his military brothers and sisters had to watch us leave Bagram Air Force Base in the middle of the night, Without telling our allies who stood shoulder to shoulder with us for decades because we asked them to be there. Think about what that told our friends. More importantly, think about what that told our enemies. This is about being strong and proactive so that you always prevent war. The last thing any military spouse wants is war. It's the total opposite.
2: Why do you think other countries do not respect America right now?
1: I think that they saw how things played out with Afghanistan. I think that they see that we're becoming more isolationist. They don't trust us to finish what we start. You know, that goes into play. You look right now, we've got Iranian strikes hitting our military members in Iraq and and Syria. And what upsets me is, I told you my husband is deployed. America always tells military families that they're going to do whatever it takes to keep their men and women safe. And here you have Iran. Biden didn't do anything after Iran struck our military the first time. He didn't do anything after they struck him the second time. He waited 165 strikes where multiple members have brain injuries now. He allowed three soldiers to die and two Navy SEALs to be lost. And now he's going to say, OK, let's do something. If he would have responded the first time they did that, it never would have gotten to this point. That's the whole issue is you have to stop war before it starts. Now we're watching a war play out in front of us. We're now involved in one that we never should have been in in the first place. It's about strength. Countries respect strength. When I was at the UN, the reason that we got our respect back is because I was very honest with them, but they knew what to expect from us. You have to know what you're going to say, you have to be willing to follow through with it and you have to stand firm. And Biden hasn't shown that. You know, he turned around and wanted to get back into an Iran deal that we had already pulled out of, but he lifted the sanctions on Iran. All that did is allow China to import all of this oil that flowed billions of dollars into Iran. And Iran went and gave to their terrorist proxies. And now we're seeing them use that money to strike against us. It's not about fighting hard. It's about fighting smart. If you fight smart, you don't have to worry about things around the world. The other thing is America being strong happens inside America as well as outside. America right now looks so distracted. And whenever America's distracted, the world is less safe. We're seeing that play out. They see us going back and forth with each other. So our enemies think they can make the move. And they're doing that. And if we're not trying to make sure that we're holding united and also getting in front of things, we're just going to see more of this happen. They just smell weakness. And when they smell weakness, they only do more.
2: Yeah. There's a lot of evidence about how Putin loves American discord. He loves American discord because it makes us look weak and it gives him an opening.
1: Russia, China and Iran love the division in our country right now. They love the chaos in our country right now. And that's the part we have to get rid of is the chaos. You know, I voted for Donald Trump twice. I was proud to serve America and his administration. But we have to face the fact chaos follows him. And we can't be a country in disarray and have a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. That's just a fact.
2: How will your presidency be different than a Trump presidency?
1: I agree with a lot of his policies. So obviously the way we do things is very different, but also from a a fiscal standpoint. Yes, we had a good economy under Trump, but at what cost? He put us $8 trillion in debt in just four years. You don't have a good economy by going in debt. You have a good economy by allowing economic freedom to happen. He didn't do that. That's the first problem. The second thing is now he wants to raise taxes on every American family. He wants to put tariffs across the board that's going to raise the cost of anything from baby strollers to appliances. Every American family will pay $2,800 more per year at least. You don't tax the Americans and you don't go into debt to create a good economy. You actually get government out of the way. You reduce the size of government. You open up trade and you allow that competition to happen. That's when costs go down. That's the first thing I'll tell you is we totally disagree on his spending with government. The second thing is our ways of handling foreign policy is very different. He goes and praises dictators. I think you shouldn't praise dictators. He praised China's President Xi a dozen times after China gave the world COVID. He basically said he was writing love letters with Kim Jong-un as North Korea threatened America and our allies. When Hamas went into Israel and caused all those tragedies October 7th, Trump went and praised their sister terrorist group, Hezbollah, and then went and hit Israel when Israel was already down. You don't do that. He praised the Chinese Communist Party for their 70th anniversary. We don't praise dictators. We praise friends. And that's the part that I think isn't working. And we saw that play out because when he tries to be friends with our enemies, they end up playing him. That's why they never banned TikTok because President Xi asked him to keep it. That's why they didn't get rid of the certain technologies that were building up China because they asked him to hold on to it. You can't be friends with these people. You just have to have honest relationships with them so that they know where they stand. So our styles there are different. And I think that, you know, focusing on how we get us back on track is not by using government to tell people what to do. It's about letting people have freedom. And at the end of the day, I want people to live the way they want to live. I want to give you all the information I can possibly give you. And you use that to make the best decisions that you can on your family. That's the bottom line. What would you say to a Democrat
2: who maybe voted for Joe Biden in 2020 and is not sure If they should vote for him again, or if they should vote for you, what would you say to that person who's listening
1: right now? I think both parties have felt like, you know, we're seeing a lot go to independent because they feel like both parties have left them. And what we've said is we just want to make America normal again. Let's get back to what we were, where we do have respect for a tax dollar and we make sure that we spend it the right way, where we are focused on getting our kids reading again and going back to the basics with education, where we do secure our borders so that we're not unsafe and we make sure illegal immigrants never step foot on U.S. soil and we reform legal immigration so that it happens the right way. Where we go and bring law and order back to our city so that people feel safe again and families don't have to worry, and where we prevent war so that we don't have to have all these wars happening around the world. That's the bottom line. That's what I think we can do. And I think the other side of it is if you look at the general election polls, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, in any general election poll, Trump is down. He might be down by seven, he might be down by nine. On a good day, he's even he might be up by two, it's within the margin of error. In every one of those same polls, I defeat Joe Biden by up to 17 points. You win by 17 points, that's more than the presidency. That's getting the House right. That's getting the Senate right. That's governorships all the way down to school board. But you win by double digits. That's a mandate going into D.C. to stop the wasteful spending and get our economy back on track. That's a mandate to get our kids reading again and go back to the basics in education. That's a mandate to secure our borders with no more excuses. That's a mandate to bring law and order back to our country. And that's a mandate for a strong America we can all be proud of. That's where I think every American wants to go. They don't want the Chaos. They don't want the division, but they do want government to work for them. And I think it's time we get rid of the political elite, the political establishment, reduce the size of the federal government, and empower people in the on the ground again. We can do that. We just have to go and say this is the time. And we don't need the drama with it. And we don't need all of the back and forth on who's right and who's wrong. We just need to do the work and get it done. And you need somebody who can put in eight years of solid discipline, solid hard work, where we can get the people to feel good about their country again. You can't do that with two guys that are sitting in their 80s. We can do better than that.
2: You know, one of the ideas that I talk about a lot is that it's more important to stand on your principles, the principles of democracy, your character principles, than it is to have party allegiance. Because parties change. The the Republican Party of 2024 is different than the Republican Party of 2008, different than the Republican Party of 1965. Parties change. But our principles and our commitment to democracy and our personal moral principles should not Bend with the tides in the same way. And, you know, I've mentioned this to other politicians. I interviewed Adam Kinzinger not very long ago, and he said one of the biggest challenges is going against, standing on principle and going against your party and how isolating that can feel. It's a very tough spot to be in. There's not a lot of wins when it comes to politics when you're standing against your party. And I'm wondering what you think of that. What are your thoughts about the concept of principle over party? And are you willing to go it alone if need be?
1: You know, I, it's, I've done that my entire life. I mean, if you look in this race, you won't see the South Carolina political elite standing beside me in this race. And the reason I had a reporter ask me said, you know, why is not is the South Carolina governor supporting Donald Trump? And I said, oh, you mean the one that I defeated when I ran for governor the first time? He's not going to support me. But then they said, well, why aren't the legislators getting around you? And I said, I don't expect them to stand around me because I forced them to have to show their votes on the record instead of hiding them behind voice votes like they were doing. I forced them to have to disclose their income so that taxpayers could see who paid them. I vetoed half a billion dollars worth of their pet projects because I didn't think taxpayer dollars needed to go that way. So the political establishment in my own party has seen me go up against them and they didn't love what I did. But at the end of the day, they weren't who I was working for. I was working for the people. You don't see the congressional members standing with me in this race either. Why? because I've said, I think we need to have term limits. I've said, I think we need to have mental competency tests. I've said that if they don't give us a budget on time, they shouldn't get paid. I've said that I don't think that they should be able to trade in the stock market because they get too much insider information. I have always gone against the grain in my own party. It doesn't matter what party you are. I'm very aware that I serve the people. And at the end of the day, that's where my allegiances are. That's where my fights are. That's what I will always do. It is always what lets me sleep at night. And it's also about making a difference. I don't go into these things to make friends. That's never the goal. The goal is how can you improve the lives of the people around you? How can you make sure you lift up all people, not just certain groups of people, but all people? And you know, I'll give you an example. When I was in South Carolina, When I became governor, we had 11% unemployment. We had thousands of people on welfare and South Carolina was the butt of the jokes. We had a lot of work to do. And what I did with the people on welfare was I went to my businesses and I said, look, if you will take this person, I will pay for them for X number of weeks if you will train them. And at the end, you can decide whether you hire them or not we moved 35,000 people from welfare to work. A lot of that had been generational welfare. Their parents had done it. Their grandparents had done it. But when we did that, it was harder. But we would have family celebrations so that kids could see their parents and the adults could see what it felt like to be a productive member of society. It's not that they didn't know how to work. They didn't know how to connect the dots. So we did that for them. And that's actually what lifted them up and changed not only their lives, but their children's lives to see what it looks like. We also went into our prison systems. I wanted to see how people got in, what happened to them when they were there, and what happened when they got out. And we reformed the entire prison system. We taught them how to do a resume. We taught them financial planning. We taught them family planning. We did faith-based help if they were willing to take it. But we put equipment behind the fence and we taught them a skill. Now in South Carolina, when someone leaves the fence, they've got a job to go to the next day. We have the lowest recidivism rate in the country. We never did what was easy. We did what was hard that would lift up all people. Because when you do that, that's truly when magic happens. That's when you're doing something that's sustainable. That's when you're doing something that's long lasting. And I think that's what we're supposed to be doing, is trying to show people that there's a better way and giving them the tools so that they can do that. Lots of people asking, and
2: I bet you've gotten this question, will you run as an independent if you don't get the
1: Republican nomination? No, I'm a Republican. We're running in this nomination. We are going to finish this. This has been building the whole way up. We're going to continue to do well in South Carolina. We're going on to Michigan. We're going to Super Tuesday. I'm not going anywhere. We are staying in this. Because I don't want my kids to live like this. I don't want our country to stay like this. I truly think we have a country to save. And so we're going to keep powering through every step of the way because I think it's important. We're going to outwork, we're going to outsmart, and we're going to outlast because this country's worth it.
2: Mm. 70% of Americans think that American democracy is at risk. That's on both sides of the aisle. They have concerns about American democracy. And I've heard you say several times now that we have a country to save, that you we you don't know where we're gonna be in four years if we don't make some changes. So what will you do to protect democracy?
1: Well, I think, you know, if you're talking about election integrity and those types of things, I think that people are concerned about whether they can trust it or whether it's not. And you know, when I first became governor, I did something. I said, you know, if you've got to show picture ID to buy Sudafed, if you've got to show picture ID to get on a plane, you should have to show picture ID to protect the integrity of the election process. And the media vilified me for wanting voter ID because they said I was disenfranchising voters. And I said, okay, if you think I'm disenfranchising voters, then this is what we'll do. Anybody who thinks they can't go to the DMV to get an an ID to vote, we will pick them up. We will take them to the DMV. We will get them a free ID and we will return them home safely. Out of 5 million people in South Carolina, only 25 people asked for a ride. We passed voter ID and we now have more people voting than ever before. We need to see that in every state in the country. Everybody wants to know their vote counts. That's not partisan. Everybody wants to know that that is them. The second thing is we also have to make sure that we're bringing integrity back to what it means to serve. Elected officials have caused distrust either by not giving information, by continuing to be partisan, by not focusing on what the American people want, but sitting there thinking about, you know, what a certain constituency wants. And we've got to change that whole field. There's a way to do this. So I
2: have just a couple more questions because I know we're almost out of time here. One of the things my community really wants to ask is about the significant uptick in crimes against LGBTQ Americans. The FBI says they're up somewhere between 15 and 30%, depending on the specific group within that community. What will you do? to protect the safety and the rights of LGBTQ plus Americans.
1: Anytime time there is hate against any group of individuals, we should call it out wherever we see it, every single time. Whether it's racism, whether it's anti-Semitism, whether it's against the LGBT community, any time that there is hate that goes out, we have to call it out the second it happens. And again, the tone at the top matters. You know, I think that when we can get our country to where we're not looking at each other as how we're different, but we look at each other as how we're same, the similar, that's what makes a difference. I always tell people the story of, I grew up in a small rural Southern town, 2,500 people, two stoplights. We were the only Indian family in that small Southern town. We weren't white enough to be white. We weren't black enough to be black. They didn't know who we were, what we were, or why we were there. And I remember when I would get teased on the playground, my mom would always say, your job is not to show them how you're different. Your job is to show them how you're similar. And it's amazing how that lesson on the playground played throughout my life, whether it was in the corporate world or whether it was as governor or ambassador, is when you're faced with a challenge, if you first talk about the things you have in common, people let their guard down and then you can get towards the solution. We have to start seeing things in America on what similarities we all have. You know, someone, if I look at you, you're a sister, you're a mom, you're a daughter, you're you're a friend. We have to start looking at people as real people and stop looking them, looking at them as a label or a thing or a view or anything else. We've got to start seeing people as our neighbors and get back to neighbors taking care of neighbors. I think when we do that, That'll make a big difference. You know, I was proud that when I was governor, we were named the friendliest state in the country and the most patriotic state in the country, the number two state in the country people were moving to. It's that feeling you bring in leadership that makes everybody want to just take care of each other and do for each other. And we've got to get back to that. I mean, for the good of our kids and for the good of future generations, I think we've got to make sure we do that. So, you know, the goal is just to stomp out hate wherever we see it, call it out every time and make sure that people are held accountable when it happens. Hmm.
2: What is one of the biggest misconceptions people have about you?
1: That's interesting. I think that the warmonger I've heard many times, I've heard people say that. I think that's probably the biggest one that I feel like I've heard is the warmonger, you know, which is just the total opposite of what I am. So that would probably be it.
2: And what is just to sort of wrap things up, I have just one or two more things. What is something that you wish voters knew about you? That maybe, you know, when you're standing on a debate stage and it's real head-to-head and it's timed, you only have so much time to make your point, you don't get a chance to talk about many of these issues. What is something you wish that if you could speak to potential voters right now, mostly women, what would you like
1: them to know about you? You Yeah, I would tell them that, you know, I was asked when I announced why I was running. And I said at the time, and, and what drives me is my parents came to America 50 years ago when our country was strong and proud and full of opportunities. I want them to know that country again. I'm doing this for my husband and his military brothers and sisters. They need to know their sacrifice matters. They need to know that, they, that we love our country. I'm doing this for my daughter who just got married, and I saw how hard it was for her and her husband to buy a home. The average home buyer in America now is 49 years old. The American dream is leaving them. And I'm doing this for my son, who's a senior in college, and I'm tired of watching him write papers of things he doesn't believe in just to get an A. That's not us. That's not America. And for the first time, 81% of Americans don't think their kids are going to live as good of a life as we did. We can't be okay with that. I'm not okay with that. I do think we have a country to save. But I know that if we pull together and I know if given the opportunity, I will spend every day trying to prove to people that they made a good decision.
2: Mm -hmm. Last question is, how can people who are interested in helping you, what can they do? I mean, yes, people know I can donate money and you need money to stay in the race. That's just, unfortunately, the system that we have requires a lot of money to become president. Yes, we can donate money. But people are thinking about, you know, maybe what what can I do besides write you a check or go on your website and donate? How could people who are interested in seeing your
1: mission continue, what can they do? Well, we actually have a great opportunity. And it's one of the things I love the most. We have a Women for Nikki Network. You can go to NikkiHaley.com and sign on to it. We have chapters in every state in the country. These women are a force. They're anywhere from stay-at-home moms to CEOs and everything in between. And it gives you an array of opportunities on how to be involved that aren't donating, but that are just caring about what happens in our country and getting involved in different ways. But not only that, you make friends. I mean, they've all become so close and we continue to add to that group. And it's really inspiring. I, It's what keeps me going. I love the fact that we have these women. I love their strength. I love their passion. I love their commitment. And I love that they all love each other. And so it's it's something that I'm very proud of.
2: Thank you so much for your time today. It was great to hear from you. I you know wish you a good night's sleep in the very near future. <laughs> Maybe a bubble bath and a massage. Uh, I can't imagine how challenging the campaign trail is and get some, take care of yourself take care of yourself so that you can keep going. I will. Yes.
1: Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for the power of your voice. Thank you for everybody out there. We need you to use the power of your voice. I mean, if we aren't part of the solution, then we are part of the problem. And so get involved in any way that you can. Know that we have a country to save. I would love your support and help. Go to NikkiHaley.com, but keep the faith. We're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Nikki.
2: This episode is hosted and executive produced by me, Sharon McMahon. Our audio producer is Jenny Snyder. Our production assistant is Andrea Champeau. And if you liked this episode, we would love to have you share it to social media or to leave us a rating or review. All of those things help podcasters out so much. Thanks for being here and we'll see you again soon. Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week. And it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try. Like which one is worth your money? And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines, you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines, Just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. I especially like the eye cream. It's not too thick where you feel like it's going to clog all your pores, but it goes on really, really nicely under makeup. For a limited time, you'll get an exclusive 15% off your first OneSkin purchase using the code SHARON when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. Try OneSkin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's oneskin.co, code SHARON.